say the game is getting old. Monday morning and your coffee's cold. Life is not what you want it to be. You need Hello everyone and welcome to A New Direction. My name is Jay Izzo and I gotta tell you something. We have a really great show. <laughs> you know, I say that every single week, right? We have this really, really great show. But we really do. The, the, the book is entitled Disrupting Corporate Culture. It's written by Dr. David G. White Jr. I'm going to tell you something. First of all, this book, and he makes no bones about it. This book is academically written, but I'm going to tell you something. We're going to break it down because I want you to forget every single thing that you ever thought about when it comes to company culture. Because the truth of the matter is it is filled with myths, it is filled with junk, it is filled with a bunch of hype, it is filled with a bunch of stuff that, quite frankly, we talk about, but we never back it up with any sort of science or empirical research. Guess what? Today, Dr. David G. White Jr. is going to blow your doors away with the fact that there is a science behind culture. What is it? How do we get there? And we're, we're going to talk about all that. He He's outstanding. You're going to love him to pieces. He's brilliant. He's also an amazing jazz musician. I'm just telling you right now, I've listened to his music. He is one of the, uh, he's it, he's an amazing jazz guitarist. I'm just going to tell you that right now. He'd be brilliant. And I love jazz. And uh, I don't say that lightly. He's a brilliant jazz guitarist too as well. So you're, you're in for a real treat. But before we get started, let's do what we do every week, right? And let's talk about uh, the four areas of your life, right? I have spent uh, the last three years talking about, you know, you have four areas, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and having you place a number with each of those to determine where you're at and, and where you're going. We've, we've more recently in the last probably two years have talked about, you know, how your training is going in the four areas of your life. Well, having come through COVID uh, myself, having had it, and you may hear that my voice is not the same and I don't have the same excitement. I do. It's just that I don't have the same lung capacity. Two things, three things actually have occurred to me during this time when it comes to the physical, the mental, emotional, and spiritual. And this came from some of the, some of the people that I've interviewed on the show who are special for operations forces folks. And one of the things I'm going to tell you is that, you know, this virus affect everybody differently. And it certainly has affected me differently because I don't have the same air. I don't have the same uh, vocal abilities that I had prior to it. They'll come back, but I just don't. And so I asked these guys, I said, you know, when you go through this, what what am I supposed to do? You know, because I, I, I probably didn't have my best two weeks, you know, on a scale of one to 10, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And you know what? I got three responses from three different people, and they were all the same. Sometimes you have to just give yourself some mercy. And, you know, mercy is, you know, not punishing yourself for a punishment that you probably deserve. And, you know, physically, you know, I talk about, you know, exercise and eating right and you know, drinking enough water, get enough sleep. But, you know, the truth of the matter is you can only do the best that you can. And some weeks are going to be better than others. Some weeks you're going to be a one, and some weeks you're going to be a ten. And some weeks you're going to be an average, and that's just five. So if you could value yourself physically in those four areas, you know, exercise, water, sleep, you know, eating right, you know, what number would you give you? And it doesn't matter. The point is, if, if you're a one this week, you know, let's just try to get to a two. Let's just give the effort to see if we can get to it too. Because none of us are going to be perfect. Right? And, and when it comes to the mental area, right, and being an active participant mentally, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I was out of it. I was in a brain fog. I still am kind of in a brain fog. And I'm going to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> I tried to read some pages of a book. I was supposed to interview a retired um, Navy SEAL, Tom Shea. And I said, I can't do it. And he said, I asked him for mercy. And you know what he said? He said, absolutely. He said, just get better. You know, and it kind of reminded me that, you know, here are these great warriors that can give us mercy. And I got mercy from him. So when it comes to your active mental ability, and, you know, today we're going to be talking about disrupting corporate culture with 
with Dr. White, but you know, be an active participant. Whatever your number is on a scale of one to 10, be that number, right? And then just try to get better. And then emotionally, you know, something came up, you know, emotionally I was out of it. But I also talked to a friend of mine who is going through a real hard time emotionally and parents are aging. And when parents age, you know, certain things happen that all of a sudden we as the children become the parent to our parents. And it's a struggle and it's hard to keep yourself emotionally. And I was reminded again, be merciful because it's hard emotionally to do that. So I don't know where she's at or maybe where you're at. Maybe you're struggling in some other emotionally. Maybe you're just not able to keep your emotions together. or Maybe you can't tap into the emotions of other people like you were before. But whatever that number is, it's okay. Because what you're going to do is you're just going to improve. So if it's scale 1 to 10, whatever that emotional number is, if it's a, if it's a 2, that's right, we're going to try to get to a 3. And then finally, the spiritual area, right? Listen, faith is all around us. It's not something that we can see. It's not something I can tangibly put my finger on. But it is something I can tell you that we all believe in something, whether it's an activity that we haven't done yet and that we have faith that we will do, or we have faith that this pandemic will one day be over. It's all faith, and that's all spiritual. And I don't know where your faith is at, and I don't know what you believe in. I'm not here to push that agenda. But I do want to ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, wherever your faith is at, how's that working out for you? Right? You know, where are you at with it? And is it working? I mean, if if it's God or nature or meditation or whatever it is, how's it working? And, And so now you have four numbers. Whatever that number is spiritually, right? You've got physical, mental, emotional, you've got four numbers. They're like the legs of a chair. I say this all the time when, you know, when your legs of a chair are uneven. It makes it really, really difficult to have good posture. By the same token, if the chair's too short, it's really hard for you to be able to um, sustain yourself so that you can actually eat at a normal size table and eat. So, folks, get your do wherever you can to just grow yourself. Be merciful to yourself, but do the best that you can to get to that next number because that's really what's ultimately important. And speaking of someone who is got it all together, his name is Dr. G. White, Jr. Uh, he is a partner and co-founder of Ontos Global. Uh, he has spent the last 30 years helping organizations manage and sustain transformation. As a cognitive anthropologist, his research and practice focuses on groundbreaking approaches to organizational culture and transformation based on the new science of the cultural mind. He's written two books that fundamentally challenge and change the way we think of culture and how it is practiced in the business world. His most recent uh, offering is Disrupting Corporate Culture, How Cognitive Science Alters Accepted Beliefs About Culture and Cultural Change and Its Impacts on Leaders and Change Agents. Um, he, he has been, from 2003 to 2010, he was Director of Talent and Organizational Capability at Microsoft. He was a principal at Mercer uh, HR Consulting. He co-founded an internet technology company uh, focused on integrating talent man- management. Um, he began his corporate career as an executive recruiter in investment banking in New York, and uh, he grew up in Chile, Spain, and the United States, and speaks Spanish, which I do not. Uh, he is also a professional jazz guitarist and composer with seven CDs to his credit. I've listened to six of them. They're fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show and welcome to A New Direction, Dr. David G. White. Welcome, David, to A New Direction. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for the lovely introduction. and. Uh... Interesting that you were talking about mercy, because a lot of this uh, culture stuff is similarly about mercy and acceptance. Um, we'll get into that. But, yeah, uh, I just found your introduction very compelling that way. Thank you. Um, you know, I got to tell you something. This book—you've uh, made no bones about it. It's an academic book, but I have always been one who likes to take the academic literature. I want to break it down so that the regular lay people—and and actually, you do do this in the book. So here's the thing. I think we should just start right away, right out into chapter one, uh, which is called the five myths of culture. And I think we should just talk about the myths of culture. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lay them out for you. And then I'm going to have you just knock each one out of the park. Does that sound fair? Let's, let's give it a whirl. All right, here we go. So the first myth I've got is culture starts at the top. Okay. David, 
help me out here. What do you mean culture st- doesn't? Are you saying culture doesn't start at the top? So the uh, prevailing wisdom is that the leader sets the culture, right? This has been true. And, and it's the most complicated myth. It's the one I devote the most ink to um, because it's the one that's most pervasive. It's most entrenched in our, in our society. And for good reason, right? I go into a lot of it is, is historical. A lot of it is um, this country, America, founded on the sort of faith of the individual, uh, the, uh, the rugged individualist myth, right? Um, the Quaker, Calvinist, uh, Protestant uh, settlers from Europe and England who came over in the 17th century, you know, believed firmly in the in the, uh, the power of the individual leader to make make change happen, and all that's carried forward into our society today. Um, the problem is that there is almost zero evidence in anthropology and other related social sciences that supports the idea that leaders somehow set culture or create culture. Cultures form perfectly well without leaders. Right. Any group tasked with any, any task, though a culture will form. Right. Generally speaking, it will form around the task, the, the, the thing that you're doing. Um, now, I, as I get into in the book, the, uh, this myth about leadership came became super prominent in the late '70s, early '80s, because corollary to that, I mean, along with, you know what was going on in that time is that um, folks in the business schools were discovering and researching that this idea that basically humans and organizations are unmotivated, people basically don't need um, you know need to be uh, directed and manipulated and cajoled to work to get right. work done. That idea, which had been around since the start of the 20th century, was debunked in the late late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s, by uh, researchers at MIT and other universities. And the idea, the new idea of management was that essentially, if you could unlock the human potential of the individual, you know, and let them flourish in an organization great things will come. You don't need to sort of manipulate and coerce and control and direct people to do work because people actually need their creativity unleashed. So that was the uh, famous so-called theory why of motivation of right. organizations. Right. The Doug, that, Doug, this was the Douglas McGregor stuff, Doug right? McGregor's theory X, idea. Yeah, yeah, theory exactly. X, theory Y, right? Was, yeah. the, was the whole idea. So theory Y when theory Y became sort of the, the de facto new way of thinking about management in organizations, culture became the convenient vehicle to enable theory Y. So in other words, if you just let, if you just create the right culture in the organization, good things will happen. And that's the simplest way of saying it. And the most, that's the most predominant um, myth that has lived with us to this day. That, you right. know, if you just make it, make the right climate, make the right environment, good things will happen in the organization. It's a very compelling myth. It's very well intended, and you know, it's got a lot of. There's a lot of good to it. There's no question. The, there it's is. The science doesn't support it. Right. Right. Yeah. So he, he, you you list five problems with why this myth that culture starts at the top is an issue. Problem one: you say leaders of, overestimate their own influence. Problem two: complex change does not happen through individual influence. Problem three: for a leader's beliefs to take hold in the organization, they have to be there to begin with. And problem four, culture is not the sum of personalities. And problem five, language alone does not change culture. And your research, the research that you, that well, not just your research, but the research that's been done here in cognitive anthropology has kind of blown open this idea that, you know, as leaders, we probably don't have nearly as much influence as we think we do when it comes to culture, because culture is going to exist with or without a leader. Is that, right. Am I am I accurate in that Perfect. assessment? Yeah, well said. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I think I think you know I'm, I I consult businesses too, and you know everybody goes oh we need to change our culture we need to change culture I'm going you, you, your culture is your culture you you didn't create it it happened mm-hmm. right I mean it's kind of an organic thing isn't it in reality? Well as I you know as I write about the book it it. it Culture, as, as we like to say, culture follows task. Right. The, the, the common way of thinking about it is that task follows culture. Like we just set the culture and the task will happen. <laughs> it actually goes the other way around. Right. I mean, what you do, this is the cognitive science of, of, of culture and of the brain. What you do shapes how you think. 
And to some extent, you know, we talk about this cognitive science of culture being kind of academic and kind of, you know, newfangled, but in some ways it's incredibly intuitive. You know, this is, culture shapes how you think. So this really means that, you know, if you are an industrial manufacturing company, the culture that you're going to have in that company or cultures are going to be industrial manufacturing cultures. Industrial manufacturing companies are more, more alike than unalike. Um, software companies are going to be much more like other software companies and they are going to be like industrial manufacturing companies. HMOs are more like HMOs than they are uh, NGOs, right? Um, so the idea is that the, the, the thing that an organization does all day, its means of production, its core, what we call the core task, you know, whether it's making pumps, whether it's making lawnmowers, whether it's selling search engine, uh, advertising, you know, um, saving patients in hospitals, those primary tasks, what the humans in those organizations spend their entire lives doing, waking lives doing, is very meaningful to those individuals. And that is what shapes the culture. That is what creates the cognitive stuff, the neuroplastic, the, the neuroplastic um, brain is shaped by these activities. And collectively, that creates the culture. So that's one of the primary sources of culture and organizations. The other is the, the belief systems and value sets of the dominant um, occupational group. So if you have a very powerful occupational group, like, again, engineers, software engineers and software companies, for example, or doctors and HMOs, actuaries and insurance companies, et cetera, those occupational values, mindsets, of those groups will dominate the culture. So your insurance company culture is going to have actuarial values or beliefs embedded into that into that right. cultural system and that's that's the idea whether so when the ceo shows up and wants to change the culture what they're dealing with already it's like swimming in the ocean you know the water's already there right you just have to you have to deal with it right so th th these ceos these leadership teams have to deal with the culture which is closely related to the, the task environment as we say of the organization and it's so this is why it's you know Industrial, or, you know, my industrial or uh, clients who want to turn themselves into like a Google or an Amazon, you know, we, we say good luck with that because unless you're fundamentally changing the work that you're going to do and the business that you're in and the business models that you have and hold, right, it's going to be tough. Okay, second myth: culture is a physical thing. I think so often we think that it's some it's something that we can put our hands on that we can just, yeah. uh, you know, like a piece of play-doh, we can manipulate it to whatever we think it is. Right. But it's not, is it? Yeah, and this is a feature of human of the human brain. Uh, we tend to take abstract things and turn them into concrete things. You know, think about mm -hmm. um, how companies talk about M and A mergers and acquisitions, right? We always talk about mergers as in like a marriage or a fight, right? You know, and these are metaphors. They're just metaphors for ways for describing abstract stuff. Culture is no different, right? It's the it's a it exists in the brain. Right. It's a it's background culture is background knowledge, what we call a reference system. It's a it's a way of making sense. And um, it's 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 knowledge that exists, but you don't use it until you need it. So the example I always like to use is, you know, how do you know when you get into an elevator in the days when we rode elevators, you know, pre COVID? <laughs> um, how do you know when you get into an elevator not to look at someone in the eye? Right. Right. Or if you're a woman. How do you know which male colleagues you can hug and which ones you can't hug? Right. right? Or um, you're in a meeting. Which is which is the meeting that you really need to prepare for and have your your stuff together for? And which are the ones that you can sort of multitask and surf the internet? Right? You, you know these things. You don't know you know them until you have to use it in context. So it's knowledge. It's background knowledge. Right. Um, we think of culture as a as kind of a dependent variable, something we can manipulate and push around. Right. Um, but in fact, it's it's like it's more like the operating system in your phone or your computer. Right. It sort of runs in the background, and and you don't really know it's there until you need to until something goes wrong, or until you need to use it. You land in a foreign country, you go to Africa and land land in uh, Accra, uh, and get out of the, get out of the airport and try to get a taxi. That's when culture hits you in the face, like, oh my God, I have no idea how to get a taxi in this place. <laughs> there are no taxis, <laughs> right? Uh, Everything I knew about sort of how to navigate to my hotel from the airport has gone out the window. Right. Now what? Right. That's right. culture. Uh, his name is Dr. Yeah. David G. White Jr. The book is entitled Disrupting Corporate Culture. Uh, you're listening to him here on A New Direction. Hey, folks, listen, um, 
<clears throat> I have two great sponsors, Epic Physical Therapy and Linda Craft and Team Realtors. Listen, Epic Physical Therapy is used by professional elite athletes from all over the world. They literally come from all over the world to work with the staff and the certified um, physical therapists that are at Epic Physical Therapy. Why? It's because Epic Physical Therapy underneath understands that your treatment program has to be tailored to your individual needs. And so they understand that the need to treat the entire body as a functional whole, not just your symptoms or your, inner, or your injury. So when you're looking for epic relief, epic recovery, and epic results, don't look any further. Just go to Epic Physical Therapy. That's epicpt.com. That's E-P-I-C-P-T.com. And Linda Craft and Team Realtors, for more than 35 years, they have been at the top of the real estate game. And the reason why they're at the top of the real estate game is because Linda and her team understand the absolute importance of the relationship when it comes to her clients and how important those relationships are in order for her and her team in order to work with uh, and maintain those relationships over the course of time because they understand that it's more than just selling a house. The, the, your home is a memory. It's filled with all sorts of memories. And so, listen, when you want to work with someone, who understands that your home is really important and there's been so many memories and that the, the relationship is absolutely priority, start with Linda Craft at Team Realtors. You can learn more by going to lindacraft.com. That's L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T dot com. And we're back here on A New Direction with Dr. David G. White Jr. and his book, Disrupting Corporate Culture. And we are uh, in the middle of talking about the five myths that we have when it comes to corporate culture. And let's be honest here. I mean, David, these myths exist and they have existed because of you said in your book, you know, you, you know, you could go to Amazon and look up books on culture and you could, you could read every book on culture and they all sound fairly similar for one, but you'll never get through them in a lifetime and you may not get anywhere with your culture. And it's really quite interesting because there are very few, this is the first book I've ever read that actually took a scientific approach to trying to understand uh, culture. And I think that's really, really important because if we can get a scientific uh, empirical view of culture, I think it would help us so much better than trying to push through a whole bunch of ideas that have really no, um, I would say no foundation to actually do any of these things. One of the myths that you bring up, myth number three is, that we have this myth that if you have one company, then you have one culture. Why is that a myth? It's a convenient myth. And one, you could take a cynical view that says, you know, well, by kind of having one company, one culture, um, everybody will sort of behave in the same way and do, do the right thing. And, <laughs> you know, we'll make a lot of money and live happily ever after, right? <laughs> Modern complex organizations don't work that way, right? right. Um, it's very hard for me, for example, to impose my values on you, right. nor would I want to. Um, but most modern corporations try to do that. They say, here are our values, here are what we believe, and you know, you, you buy in. And it's, kind of, it's basically a recruiting tool. Look at Netflix is a great, great example. Um, and you know, the, the Netflix manifesto, here's what we stand for. Most high-tech companies have these kinds of uh, manifestos. Right. There's nothing wrong with them because they, say, they send important information to the, to the consumer and to the and to the person who wants to work there as to what this company is about. But it's very difficult to impose a way of thinking on someone else unless that person already shares, shares that view. So the one company, one culture idea is kind of this sort of homogenizing, unifying idea that is designed to sort of think that we're all kind of um, marching in unison you know, to, to fame and fortune and riches and, and eternal success. In reality, a company of any size is going to have multiple cultures or what, what right. I like to call reference systems, you know, knowledge systems in place. Often they're competing with each other. Um, you see this sometimes in, in culture clashes within organizations, you know, the IT department clashing with the, uh, with the sales department or the sales, you know, folks clashing with the operations folks. I mean, right. these are cultural systems colliding, right? And this is what happens in, in any modern organization of any size. Small, small startups, you know, you might see a very homogenous, unified 
culture, but as a company scales, it becomes very hard to maintain that. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a myth that, to try to um, unify and manage in a normative way um, what's difficult to manage. You, you also talk about that, you know, as companies get larger, right? We, we, we threw out the Dunbar's number. It's a fun little thing we like to talk about in psychology that we are limited probably to the number of relationships we have is about 150. But the truth of the matter is, you know, even within a small company culture, right? And I work with a lot of small companies, but even within a small company, there are multiple cultures that overlap, whether it's because it's some sort of other dynamic that's happened, that they've made connections in another way, that they're in, there's an, this particular in-group, you know, different in-groups that have been created and, and they're separate. And this idea that somehow we can just be this one homogenized culture just doesn't really, to me, even make any logical sense. And yet we promote, uh, how many companies have we seen promote this idea that we're just this one big, beautiful, happy family <laughs> that doesn't have any issues and we are all on the same page and we're all going in the same direction. That just can't be true, can it? The uh, famous anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss Levi said, myths exist to predict the future, mm. to try and predict the future. And I think a lot of this is about trying to sort of make the future intelligible um, based on the past um, for, for these CEOs. It's, it's, it's a convenient myth because it, you know, it can attract people, it can attract talent, it can right. help investors, you know, uh, it can help your stock price. I mean, there's, let's, let's be clear, you know, you, culture... Like anything else, if you follow the money, you find out some of the reasons why some of the stuff exists. It's, again, as I said, a normative tool to try to get people to operate in a certain way that you want them to operate. It sounds a little cynical, but there's, there's some truth behind it. Well, no, I get it. So let's go, to, let's go to myth number four, because I love this myth, because we're kind of leading into it. Culture is what we say we care about. <laughs> I, think this is, I think this is the problem is that we so often we go you know we put our we put our mission statements up on the walls and things like that right and we assume we assume that if we care enough then everybody else will just fall into place but that's not true either is it and again you know i i i, I don't want to sound overly cynical i mean a lot of this stuff is well-meaning right right um, right right of it's, course it's well right. in, well intended um who wouldn't want to work in a place that was, you know, more collaborative or more humane right. or, you know, um, thought about the customer in the right way, you know, instead of, I mean, all of this, all of this stuff is very, very well intended. It's just, it just doesn't work. It's just not that easy in reality. Right. Because again, of these colliding reference systems, these systems of values and beliefs that we all bring. You know, as we like to say, culture doesn't end once you step out of the, uh, once you go home at night, you know, and the, the, the uh, analogy I use in the book is, you know, imagine you're, uh, imagine you're, you're, you're in an HR department running a culture survey in your company, and the person taking the survey is a chemical engineer in Houston um, from, from India, right. you know, who belongs to, you know, Indian culture, and that's, that's, that's a thousand cultures within that construct right. alone right? right but you know his indian culture engineering culture um you know he belongs to a certain religious organizations there's a religious culture you know which which culture are you actually surveying when you send out a survey and you want somebody right. in your organization to respond to what are they what reference system are they referencing when they answer your survey and how would you know right. we're all part we all live in multiple cultures all the time and that doesn't end when we go to work right it, you know you you, you know, this particular myth really brings it to two things because, you know, typically we talk about norms and values, you know, that, you know, that that's what makes up culture. And I'm not saying that, you know, that it, there's not a part of that. It's just the, the, the problem is, is that you make this point, you know, when you talk about the problem with cultures and values, is that values mean different things to different people. Exactly. You know, right. I mean... If I espouse my values on you, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are in agreement of what those values are. That's right. That's exactly right. Teamwork is a great example, right? What does teamwork right. mean to you versus versus some someone from Japan? 
right? Right. And then, you know, are now, and even in the US, this huge country, country that we have, you know, teamwork means different things, you know, to different people all over, all over the country. Um, values is, values is well studied. Uh, and look, values and norms do have something to do with culture. Right. I'm not saying that they do not. Right. But the question is, is it the tip of the iceberg or is it the mm. iceberg, the base of the mm. iceberg? I argue that these things are often the tip of the iceberg. And to make things even more complicated, culture is a super complex topic. Values uh, and norms or desired norms are often compensations for other stuff in the reference system that are, that are going on. So what do I mean by that? For example, we have a, we have a client here in the Bay Area, um, a high-tech company who um, values teamwork and collaboration as a huge value and it's, you know, it's espoused in all of their literature and trained. And one of the reasons that that value is so important is because um, as we've studied it, as, as we study uh, what we call the dominant logics or the sort of core of their reference system, the core sort of beliefs in their reference system. Right. One of the things we found is that this idea of craft is really dominant, meaning craft, meaning you're really good at what you do, whether you're in marketing or sales or engineering, you're like at the top of your game. And if you're not, yeah. I'm not going to really pay any attention to you. Gotcha. So I'm only going to work with you, Jay, if, if you're, if you're really hot and you know, you're, you're tops um, and collaborate with you. So collaboration becomes a value that is a compensation for the fact that what really goes on in that culture is that unless you're really, unless I really consider you to be um, really good at what you do, I don't want to work with you. Mm. I don't want to collaborate with you. Right. So the collaboration yeah. becomes an attempt to write a cultural wrong or a cultural gap uh, that's perceived. So a lot of times when we, when we see values in organizations, whether they're espoused or, or talked about, they're often compensatory, or I call them adaptations mm -hmm. to more dominant logic that exists deeper in the system that the company's trying to uh, address in some way. Gotcha. Hey, you, when it comes to values, you, you do make, on page 25, you make mention, you say values do not drive success. What, what are you saying in that statement? Yeah, well, there's, again, uh, a lot of research. <laughs> again, we'd like to think that the values are account for success. You know, one of the common stories, uh, six, you know, great stories, Southwest Airlines, right? You know, the Herb Kelleher's values are what led right. to the company's success. Well, it, it, it works because it's a convenient piece of copy. It sells books. It's easy to put into a, into a sort of a tagline. But if you study Southwest closely, you will see that those values, the initial ideas that Herb Keller had, airline for the common man, for example, translated into a whole set of practices mm -hmm. like single aircraft types, you know, um, uh, managers cleaning airplanes, you know, short turnaround times, all that so they could keep their fares low so they could attract the quote unquote common man. That was the original mission statement of Southwest um, to the airline. You know, to, right. to to bring people into in, you know into uh, get people flying who wouldn't ordinarily fly in the 70s and most people who the people who flew were people basically business people, right? Not just sort of vacation or people right. who didn't have a lot of money. So this idea of airline for the common man is important as a value, but what really made that culture at Southwest successful over the years was this whole set of practices around uh, aligned around that core. And so if you study culture closely, you see it's the practices when I, and I use the word practices very intentionally to mean routines, processes, habits, things that you do repeatedly and in a sustained way over time, collectively, that is what tends to drive or instill a set of values or a culture. So if you, you know, we're kind of pre getting ahead of ourselves here, but if you want to drive culture. It's the practices that drive the culture, not merely just writing a set of values on a poster or on a website. Or talking about it in a town hall. <laughs> you know. Well, we, we, I mean, you could listen. Somebody's making a ton of money off of those posters. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It ain't, it ain't me. <laughs> yeah, it's not me either. But somebody is making a lot of money off these posters that are kind of trying to inspire us. Uh, which, basically, what we're understanding from the science really isn't having that great of an effect. Let's look at let's look at cultural myth number five. Culture is employee well-being. I think this is so fundamentally uh, true that we do believe that culture is about our attitudes and opinions and 
you know, that, um, you know, how we feel in, in terms of, you know, how are we treating employees? I think it's so much, there's so much <laughs> that just doesn't make sense here. It, talk to us about why culture is really not about employee well-being. Well, again, uh, nothing wrong with, you know, an attitude survey and nothing wrong with tracking employee happiness, right? It's right. great. I mean, who wouldn't want to have happy employees? And there, there is a correlation. Happy employees do lead to, generally speaking, higher productivity, which tends to translate into profits. Um, but culture, as again, as we've been alluding to here in the last, you know, last few minutes, is something deeper, right? right? And so the attitudes that you have about your job, about your boss, about the mission of the company, about the direction, might be attitudes that you hold um, that are independent of the culture, that are compensations for the culture, that might be idiosyncratic. Like, you know, I, like, as we say, you know, I hate my boss, but I love, I love our CEO, but I hate my boss, you know, kind of thing. So how is that going to show up in, a, in, a, in an attitude survey? And, and uh, again, how we behave often is not a reflection of our attitudes. There's an interesting, interesting body of research that suggests that what we, what we hold as our own attitudes or what we believe tend not to correlate to how we behave because how we behave is conceptual right. and situational. And you right. might behave one way one, one moment in some situations or with some people, but a different way in another, in another context. And so what we're trying to do in this, you know, with the cognitive science of culture is kind of get deeper into these, again, the, these reference systems, the, the sort of operating system that we share that runs in the background that tends to orient us uh, situationally a lot I, more. I, I want to say something that you just said here that is so fundamentally important. I hope people didn't miss it. So often we get caught into the idea that somehow our attitude our, or our behaviors are consistent, that we can look at a behavior and read the mind of the individual or we read the attitude of the individual. But we are so inconsistent I mean, what we do is not necessarily what we think, and what we think isn't necessarily what we do, right? I mean, that's really kind of the crux of this piece. Or did I miss that? No, no, that's that's exactly right. Um, what we do does shape how we think, right. but how we think um, can be highly situational, right? Because right. Uh, for, for the reasons you just said. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, well, let's... let's Let's dig in here to what is culture then. If it's not all these five things, you know, and more, what is culture then? Yeah, and, and, and we've touched on it, but the simplest way of saying it is culture is knowledge. Mm. Uh, the modern cognitive science view is culture, culture is knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Well, it's background knowledge, as I've said. It's stuff we know that we don't know. We know. Mm. Um, we call it, I call Cognitive anthropologists call it a reference system. Right. That's a little too esoteric for people. It just, you know, think of it as just stuff you know that you don't know you know, but you use it hmm. every day. Um, and, you know, our minds are incredible, right? Because right. We, we don't need to know a lot of culture to operate successfully, but it is what we need to know to operate successfully. Um, but we don't hold it in conscious memory. We just use it when we have to. I think you gave this analogy in the book, but this is the way I've kind of thought about it. When I used to teach... Um, psychology, and I was teaching brain anatomy and function. You know, we have 100 billion synaptic connections in our brain. Yes. And uh, we have this thing called vesicular release of neurochemicals, which they're about, they're over 5,000 that run between these 100 billion synaptic connections. And it's an electrochemical uh, thing that happens in your brain. You really don't have to know what's going on in your brain in order to know that it's functioning appropriately. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that you talk about in terms of a reference system, and you've already alluded to one analogy, which is it's kind of like the operating system that runs in the background of your computer or your phone. But humanly speaking, it is the stuff that runs in us mm -hmm. that we, I think, you know, I, I think you make this term, right? It's kind of an unconscious thing that we, as we get together as groups, we unconsciously put this stuff together, right? To, and we form these cultures in the same way that we form new synaptic connections. Is that, is that, is, is that fair? 
well, yeah, I would use the word unconscious. I mean, that's that's absolutely right. I, the word I like to use is preconscious because sure, okay. Once we become aware, we're aware. I, you know, for example, back to my simple little elevator analogy. Like, you can choose to stare at someone in the elevator. <laughs> it might you might get in it might get into trouble, <laughs> but you can choose to do it. You can cho- once you become aware of the cultural norm, the cultural rule, or the logic, as I call it, you can you can break it. Right. Right. But it, it may come at a consequence. Like, you know, I use another analogy in the book, you know, how do you know what to do on a subway platform in any given city? Again, back in the days when we were riding subways, right. um, you know, you could choose to block entrance to the subway car when people are trying to get on at rush hour might cause some problems. Right. But you could choose to do it. You can choose to break a cultural pattern at any point. So this is why I call it as pre-conscious knowledge, because once it's brought to your awareness, mm. then you have some choice in what you do. I love, um, I love that. And this is the this is the power of culture. So back to your you know the, your first myth that we talk about. It's not that leaders don't have anything to do with culture. That would be that would be erroneous. Right. They do, but it's not causal. It's not direct. It's not an algorithm. It's not A plus B equals C. Leaders play a very very important role in culture. Why? Because leaders tend to sanction or set in motion practices. Mm-hmm. You know they what do leaders do? They allocate capital allocate resources, set agendas, you know, define future. And these activities tend to put in motion a whole set of processes and routines and habits in the organization that in turn can drive culture. And that's the connection. But it's Uh, it's hardly causal or or linear. Totally, totally agree. Is he great, folks? You're listening to Dr. David White, author. Disrupting Corporate Culture, and he's fantastic. And you're listening to him here on A New Direction. Hey, folks, Epic Physical Therapy, one of my sponsors, um, is got is the facilities are amazing, by the way. Opening up new shops um, all over. They offer the most advanced top-of-the-line equipment, including the Alter-G Anti-Gravity Treadmill, the Normatec Compression Sleeves, Game Ready, which I've talked about ad nauseum <laughs> much. I love it. That's just a few they're trained to certify the most comprehensive cutting-edge treatments like blood flow restriction therapy, dry needling, uh, fantastic, cupping. Um, just saw The Rock uh, get his cupping done where he was manipulating the muscle on his back with these cups. Um, <laughs> uh, he said it looks it looks bad, but it feels great. So, uh, but it's just it's just interesting. Look, here's the thing, you know, when you are ready to really whether you're injured or you just want to maybe surgery, post-surgery, maybe you're just having everyday aches and, everyday aches and pains. Look, maybe you're just having difficulty performing activities. Maybe you're an athlete. It doesn't matter. Just start with Epic Physical Therapy. If you're looking for that Epic Relief, Epic Recovery, Epic Results, start with EpicPT.com. That's E-P-I-C-P-T.com. They're going to handle it for you. I promise. Talk to them. And Linda Craft and Team Realtors. Look, um, you know what? Real estate is a... Uh, is 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 been around forever, but I got to tell you something. Linda Craft and Team Realtors does it right. They do it in the right way because it, they understand it's about people first. All right, it's not about just making a sale. It's not about getting, you know, doing everything in 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 the whole business world right. It's about people. That's where she made a difference in 1985 and continues to do so today. Because it starts with people. Not only does it start with the people that she serves, which it does, but it also starts with the people that she has in her team. And so, you know, she's got all the business acumen in the world. Matter of fact, her first slogan was Linda Kraft knows her business. She still does, and so does her team. They're the experts. They know what they're doing, but they do it in a way that's personal. So when you want a real estate expert who's going to give you the personal touch, who's going to really care about what you care about, start with Linda Craft and Team Realtors. It's real easy. Just go to lindacraft.com. It's L-I-N-D-A-C-R-A-F-T dot com. And we're back here with uh, David White. We're talking about his book, uh, Disrupting Corporate Culture. So, David, we're talking about, well, what is culture? And uh, we've done some great analogies here, I think, to help people kind of understand. You know, you... The book says disrupting corporate culture, but the more I read this book, the more I wondered, it really isn't necessarily about the corporate culture. It's any culture. 
in reality that we can disrupt, isn't it? Absolutely, because the culture, cultural laws are universal in the sense of, you know, cultures have been around for as long as humans have been around in societies. Right. Business leaders tend to think, you know, that they invented the concept or pundits, you know, like corporate culture is a thing was invented in the 1970s to make companies more profitable. Um, it's, it really, it's, you study societies back to the Stone Age and cultures emerge. Right. Um, so yes, absolutely. So so as we're talking about cultures, one of the things that you say is, um, you know, we talked about it briefly. You know, uh, organizations develop cultures by doing meaningful. This I'm quoting you, by doing meaningful and habitual things like successively solving a hard problem or meeting a tough right. challenge deemed important to the collective. Dig into that a little bit um, about how. The problem-solving aspect, because we do talk about, you know, what we do, you know, you know, what we do kind of shapes how we think, but in also in the sense how that how that filters out into creating a culture. Yeah, it's it's the heart of the the issue, um, Jay. So, you know, great great question. Um, think about it. Just th- take a step back and just think about it. Um, you know, kind of intuitively for a minute. You know, if you're in a group and you do something and it, and it works and it's successful and you feel great about it, you're going to tend to take those rules of thumbs, those heuristics, that knowledge, that sort of tribal knowledge that you gained in succeeding in that task and want to sort of apply it again and do it again. Because it's, you know, it's a rule of thumb or it's a way of working. It's a thing that you did that worked. Scale that out to a collective, to a company, and the same applies. Uh, and and this is the what I call the dominant logic or logic. In, a, in an organization, you know, companies that have um, successfully overcome or dealt with tough challenges, you know, we have a, a client, for example, uh, it's a defense contractor. Um, back in, was it 2012, 2013, the U.S. government went through a, the sequestration process where basically um, government budgets were cut dramatically, 20, 30% right. in budgets, right, which had a huge influence on the, or huge impact on the the defense contractors, the you know the Raytheons and Northrop Grumman's and Boeing's of the world. Um, this particular company is a, is what they call a subprime. It sells to those big companies. Well, that was a small you know a Raytheon might might be able to withstand a a thirty percent cut in government spending on defense, but a, a, a contractor to Raytheon, a much smaller company, may not. This particular company, our client, you know had to go through a significant downsizing in order to survive sequestration. It did successfully. It had to cut staff almost to 50% of its, of its, of its, of its company. But it survived. And as a result of that successful, I'm using that word in quotes, experience, it has, of course, become, as you might expect, very fiscally conservative mm. and prudent. And um, watches sort of quarterly earnings and quarterly results and manages, manages its business very, very closely, you might say in an overly controlling kind of way. And so sort of deep sort of financial control of the business is a dominant cultural logic in the business that yeah. comes, you can trace it directly back to successfully having navigated through the sequestration. Now, it's not that easy and that linear and, and that, that, that sort of financial control or close control of the business is but one dominant logic among several in that business. But it's an example of how group survival is meaningful and that shapes the synaptic plasticity, the synaptic connections in the brain that then make that collective logic seem really important and really necessary. Now that becomes a dominant part of the culture when you start sort of taking the idea of close control of your finances and applying that to every other part of your business. That's how it becomes kind of a, a shared dominant logic because it's no longer just an ordinary business practice. It's now suddenly that close con- closely controlling every facet of your business is kind of how you run the business in every every shape or every every way possible. You know, it's, so you can begin to see also how that constrains some of your some of the things you might want to do when you want to change something. Right, and, and we're going to we're going to we're going to talk about um, you know, how do we change this culture thing in a second, but yeah, <laughs> I think. One of the things that it just keeps coming back to me is that there is this, you know, as a group in your business, you know, regardless of the size, there is this shared, you call it pre-conscious. I, I, I use the word unconscious, but this, this, there's a shared 
pre-conscious set of schemas is the word you use, but yep. it yep. these habits, the, the these habits, these practices that we formed that have created this reference system that we're completely unaware of, but that does exist in the background. And only when it's challenged or we make intentional, uh, we, we become intentional about becoming aware of it, do we ever really become aware of really what the culture is? Right. We, 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 I think you're saying is that we will label the culture of what we think it is, but that can be so inaccurate because we really take for granted what is actually happening in our company culture. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is, that, is that, am I anywhere in the ballpark here with? No, you're, you're, totally, you're totally in the ballpark. And, and uh, you know, just to add one layer on top of what sure. you're saying, think about, you know, in any organization, there's multiple reference systems, multiple cultures at play or at work at any given moment, any, any organization of any size, right? Um, which makes it doubly complex as to which, which reference system, which operating system are you, you know, are you referencing? It's like mm. having, it's like you have one operating system on your iPhone, but imagine having like eight, right? Right. So, so which one are, which one is at play or dominant in, in any given moment? Right. Um, and yeah, that's what makes culture so fascinating, makes it, makes it complex, but it makes it, you know, more, um, it's much more of an organic thing. Right. Than, than a, you know, physical thing. Right. Yeah, you, which then comes to chapter five, <laughs> right? Chapter five in the epilogue, right? The, the chapter after it is okay. All right, all right, Doc. You can hear him. You can hear him calling you out, right? I'm, I'm I got people on Castbox FM Live. I got people here on Facebook Live. They're calling me out. Okay, Doc, you've you've explained the myths. I think I can understand what you're getting at when it comes to culture. All right. So how am I going to change it? Mm-hmm. What do I got to do? Where do I start? Where do I start to change right. this? Where right. do you start? Yeah. So um, it's it, once again, it, it may sound simple and intuitive, and it's of course not. But right. uh, let me just start with a simple, uh, and with what I label one of the chapters: change the practice, change the culture. Right. Right. Let's just start by acknowledging that. Most of the conventional thinking goes the other way around. Change the culture, change the practice. <laughs> no, no, you want to you want to lose twenty pounds? You can just repeat, you know, okay, I'm going to lose twenty pounds. I'm going to lose twenty pounds. But until you actually change your habits, right, or your routines, or unfortunately acquire COVID, like as, you, as we've <laughs> talked about, um, uh, until you start changing your habits, you're not going to lose twenty pounds. In fact, you know, the right. most people who try to lose twenty pounds and go do do the New Year's resolution thing wind up gaining, you know. 100%, 107% back right. of the weight they lost, right? <laughs> right. So it, it's got to, you've got to make fundamental changes to habits, routines, processes. Now, that's a lot easier said than done because often culture change in most organizations is, is something left to the HR department right? because it's a th- thought of as a people thing. But as I try to argue in the book, it's not a, not a people thing. It's not just a people thing. It's, it's you know, in the book, I lay out, six practice areas right. that re- essentially are the way you run your business from the way you plan to the way you monitor and control to the way you do product to the, to the way you think about customers, the way you think about people, even the way you do, you know, you, you have a, what we call, so, you know, your social acceptance practices. Right. All of those practice areas are fundamental ways in which you run your business. When you start to look at how those practices sustain your, your schemas, as you call them, or the logics, that are embedded in your business and still until you start to look at those, you're never going to change your culture. Mm. Now, having said all that, that's easier said than done, but having said all that, it would be highly destabilizing to change all aspects of your business at the same time, unless, unless you're in a massive turnaround situation. And so finding the ones that are high leverage and that have the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak, is the, is part of the, yeah, let me just, the process. Let me just kind of read these out. These are the practices in the reference system that you, that, that he has laid out in the book, and he puts it in the six categories he's mentioned. I'm just going to give them to you. Planning, uh, that is how do you plan, forecast, set a strategy. Management and reporting, the ways in which you monitor and track what's going on in your business. C- the customer, how you engage and deliver value to your customers, your partners, etc. The product, how you define, development, produce, products and services. People, that's the hiring and managing and promotion um, and development of your people. And then social acceptance, which is the ways in which you determine social acceptability how you deal with conflict. I think the important thing, and you made mention of it here, is you know, any one of these things can be daunting 
to try to change in a business, whether it's planning, management, reporting, the customer, product people. So often, I think, though, we we do believe that we could change them all at the same time. And that can be disastrous, can't it? At your peril, right, right. Yeah, and, and as I argue in the book, there's a, there's a sort of a precursor to all of that. And it goes right back to the opening of your show, Jay, um, which has to do with acceptance or what, what, we, what we call, what I call in the book, awareness, right? Mm. First thing that you, you really have to do is just become aware of what your dominant logics are in your business to begin with. Right. It's a, that's a process of developing awareness, right? We, before we can change anything about ourselves, we have to become aware that this is something going on with us, right? right? Same thing in a collective. And that's often an activity, very important activity for, for the leadership team or a leadership team, uh, which usually includes the CEO or the top of the top management. And that's difficult because with culture, as soon as I make you aware, uh, you and your team about sort of the culture or the, re the reference system and the logics of your organization, um, they're liable to be changed. Right. Like if, you know, you, I, 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 you know, if I make you aware of how controlling you are as an organization, um, the first thing you might want to say is, well, we've got to stop being so controlling. You know, we've got to let people go do their thing. And, and that's well-intended. Uh, but then how will that be supported by actual practice changes in, in the arena of how you plan or how you monitor and control the business, for example? Uh, and that's where it gets, it gets dicey. And that takes real intestinal fortitude real courage uh, from any leader. Any leader, um, In my experience, a lot of leaders take, when you expose them to their own SDLs, their own shared dominant logics, they, get, they take it very personally because they think they've been responsible for putting those logics in place to begin with. So we often say to them, well, hold on. They might've been there before you got here. So don't, don't take it all on yourselves, uh, on yourself. Um, but awareness is, you know, without being overly facetious, awareness is really the half the battle. Uh, we have been on almost an hour, and um, I've had a great time with you. Um, this has been a lot of fun to discuss your book. I hope you've had a good time on the show. Um, great questions. You've done your homework. Very impressive. Thank you. Uh, you know, and I always enjoy these conversations because they get me thinking too. <laughs> well, what I missed or what, how, how stupid I sound or whatever. <laughs> you know, no, it's just, it's, it's so funny because, you know, as a guy who has been in academia and who is just so devoted to, you know, making this applicable, I think we did that today. And so I'm going to ask you one more application question. The show is called A New Direction because we try to help people find a new direction in success and leadership, whether that be in life or business. If you could leave the listeners with a new direction based on your book, Disrupting Corporate Culture, what would be the new direction that you would leave them? I, I would, I think we've, I think we've said it. Um, it's a great question. I, I think we've said it. I, I would say, can I, could there be two? Sure. Yeah, there <laughs> can be. Say, I would say, um, you know, when you start thinking about culture in any society, an organization, you know, a company, a, a church, a sports team, um, your, you know, your neighborhood group, whatever it might be, you know, be, think hard about the work, the actual work that you do, the tasks that you perform. Because in there lies the more of the secret of what your culture is about. Uh, than anything. And, you know, the number one thing that you can do as a leader or anybody who's involved in trying to change a culture is become aware of what sort of that core DNA or logic of your culture is. Um, and that's the, the, the biggest service you can you can provide as a change agent, if you aspire to be such one, such a change agent is to make your organization aware of the logics at the heart of your how you do business. His name is Dr. David White. The book is entitled Disrupting Corporate Culture. He was great, wasn't he? Folks, be inspired because, you know, when you're inspired, that means you can inspire others. And when they're inspired, they in turn inspire other people as well. And that can make this world a great place. I'm going to be back next week with another great guest, another great book. It's going to be another great show. And as I say to you every week, ciao, everybody.
confidence And the answers don't make sense You got to keep your hope alive You got to know you can survive This is your Dreams will take 